kneel before Zor. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing My Dinner with Andre, released October 11th, 1981. It was written by Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory, directed by Louis Maul, and released by New Yorker Films. This movie, uh, preemptive disclaimer, is impossible for me to discuss beat for beat the way I do with a normal film. You have to watch it if you want to understand it. So I'm going to try and interpret things. I'm going to try and tell you what I think the flow of the conversation was, but the whole thing is just two guys talking to each other. So I can't do it justice. You have to see it yourself to really understand the film. That being said, playwright and theater director Andre Gregory reached out to actor Wallace Shawn proposing some kind of collaboration. Shawn thought the contrast of their personalities was amusing and figured a conversation between the men would give Gregory room to share his fun anecdotes that he always gives. Though it might make more sense as a play, Shawn always intended it as a film project. Both actors have made repeated assurances that they are not playing themselves in the film and would happily trade places for a remake to prove it. Conversely, Andre has confirmed that all the experiences he describes in the film are true and only the character he plays is falsified. So, it really... They're it, playing versions of themselves. They, they, yeah. they are playing themselves. Yeah. And his stories are true and the conversations seem to be genuinely how they feel about things. Yeah. So, I don't know why you pretend that any of it's not real. Right. Once a script was put together, it somehow found its way to French director Louis Maul, who contacted Wallace Shawn to ask permission to direct. Once attached, Maul helped Shawn cut a full hour from the script. Worried by Andre Gregory's complete lack of acting experience, Maul did once suggest Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, from All the President's Men, to play their roles. This was enough to scare Gregory into taking his preparation very seriously. Aside from a few exteriors in New York, the film takes place entirely within the vacant Jefferson Hotel in Richmond, Virginia. Somehow they managed to spend $400,000 on the production, <laughs> but it made $5.25 in the box office. I mean, I can see, like, you would really have, if it if it was, like, an abandoned, and it was in, like, really bad shape, yeah. and then you had to spend, like, serious, like, contractor money to get this place looking like a normal place. Yeah, I, I unclear how much work exactly they did on this room, uh, other than, I mean, populating it and yeah. and faux staffing it. But uh, it, it's not like they were running the heating and everything. They, I guess they ran the electricity, but the heating was not running in the building. The film was critically acclaimed upon its release, and Roger Ebert declared it his favorite film of 1981. But I didn't see any Oscar nominations, which I thought was odd. Hmm. Maybe it didn't get a wide enough release to qualify? Not sure. If it didn't get a wide enough release to qualify for the Oscars, why did we watch it? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time. We, we should have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> the film opens on Wallace Shawn as a version of himself referred to in the film as Wally. He wanders through Soho and is nearly struck by a car crossing the street. We hear Wally's internal monologue. Why was the car crossing the street? <laughs> I don't know, to but get it to almost the other hit side? him. <laughs> to get to the other side. Of course. Get it? Because the car dies. 
We hear Wally's internal monologue complaining about the daily chores of a playwright and character actor. He is overloaded with bills and he has trouble paying them. He rides in a heavily graffitied subway car. He used to come home to a home-cooked meal each night, but his girlfriend Debbie is working three jobs now and hasn't the time. Presumably, she has to work this much to make up for Wally's inconsistent pay as an actor. Now, he complains about being forced into today's lunch meeting with an acquaintance he'd been avoiding named Andre Gregory. Andre directed one of Wally's first plays, but he's turned weird in recent years. Wally arrives at the restaurant and hands over his coat to the coat check girl. He's directed by the maitre d' to the bar while their table is prepared. He looks around at the crowd and seems to judge them for being fancier than he is. One of the people he sees is a woman with dark hair holding a narrow glass. She's being played by the very same Debbie with three jobs that Wallace Shawn was actually seeing at the time. Her full name is Deborah Eisenberg, and she's an acclaimed writer of short stories, and as far as I can tell, they are still together. Wally is surprised Andre would pick such a fancy place for lunch, but he must have lots of money now because he's constantly going on extravagant trips, but still providing for his family at home. Andre finds Wally at the bar and the two hug. Moving forward, I will have a very hard time describing specifically Andre's side of this conversation, but like I said, the film needs to be seen firsthand to be properly appreciated, and nothing I say will do his words justice. It's just a weird film for our format, but we're covering everything, so this is going to happen occasionally. The waiter takes them into their table. Wally decides to start their conversation with lots of questions because it relaxes him to just investigate in this way. I, I do think it's interesting, though, that he talks about that he's really good at asking questions because yeah. I feel like throughout this film, his questions are not very no. good. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. They both order the Cayo Raison. No, I, th I think I'll have the Cayo Raison. Quail. Oh, quails. I'll have that as well. Two. Do you guys recall the last time we saw two people enjoying Cayo Raison? Oh, uh, was it Jaws? No. Not Jaws. Uh, it, doesn't she cook a bunch of weird meals in Jaws? You mean Jaws 2? I do mean Jaws 2. Mm. No, not Jaws 2. <laughs> but she does make weird meals in no. Jaws 2. What is that movie that she makes weird meals in? Is it the one I'm thinking of? There's a woman that's cooking for her for police her, inspector husband. Yeah, for her husband. Oh, like, it's not Jaws 2, but it is... Quail with grapes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know. That wasn't Jaws 2. What was that? Um, it was another... It, it was a we don't believe what's happening, title. got to investigate what's happening kind mm -hmm, of movie. Mm -hmm. What was that movie? A, a series of murders that the inspector was in charge of, and this was like the lighthearted comedy moment in the serious brutal murder movie was it uh frenzy it was frenzy Kai Riza. Hmm? quail with grapes there you go why did i why was i picturing <laughs> that jaws too well it's you know thematically people the are dying and then there's some <laughs> jokey stuff in the background at the start andre discusses his family a bit including his wife chiquita this was his wife documentarian mercedes nebelthau's actual nickname Gregory mentions he was invited to Poland to teach by acquaintance Jerzy Grotowski, a famous Polish theater director, and in real life the subject of several of Chiquita's documentaries. When Gregory told Grotowski he didn't think he could teach, Grotowski asked what he'd like to do, if anything was an option, and Gregory made the seemingly random request of a class of 40 female musicians who don't speak English and a forest to teach them in, and two weeks later Grotowski had it all set up, including the forest. Because he didn't speak the same language as his pupils, the class was as informal as it gets. The sessions lasted from sunset to sunrise, consisting largely of improvised dance, and the rest of the time they just camped out in the woods and had feasts. 
They use the Stanislavski approach to acting by asking who they are and why they're here, but instead of asking it about a character, they asked it about themselves as a human. Which is obviously a meta joke about what these two actors are doing in the scene. They're playing themselves as characters. Then, Andre explains Grotowski's concept of a beehive, where 100 people are invited to a room, and whatever happens is a beehive. And while he can't possibly care, Wally asks to hear more. God, well, tell me about it. Which reminded me of the scene in The Simpsons when Martin Prince is playing the My Dinner with Andre arcade game, and the controls have trenchant insight and tell me more. Thirsting for a way to name the unnameable, to express the inexpressible. Tell me more. <laughs> Over the course of Andre's beehive, people slowly learn a song and dance in circles, and he compares the energy to Hitler's Nuremberg rallies, but doesn't elaborate, and Wally's expression <laughs> seems confused. Quick side note on the my dinner with Andre Simpsons game. You know that they someone actually made the Waterworld arcade game. Oh, from did the they? Simpsons. <laughs> they actually made a full game of that. That's awesome. And you have to keep constantly putting in like twenty five quarters <laughs> because <laughs> you die immediately all the time. That's great. The Beehive did more weird stuff: breastfeeding teddy bears, putting their hands in candle flames. Apparently, two of his students fell in love and were married. At the end of the course, Andre's students organized a baptism for him, and then a giant feast. It sounds like he took it all very seriously, and it was an emotional experience. And then he goes digging through his pockets for a photo from the day. When he hands it to Wally, it's a black and white picture, and Andre looks like a POW. <laughs> it's a much younger picture of him. Now, Andre goes on an odd tangent about coincidence, and says that he heard someone mention the little prince, and then someone wrote him a letter that used the word tamed... So he traced his hand as a response to the letter. Sometime later, in a collection of surrealist art from the 20s and 30s, he found several pages of hand tracings, including one by the author of The Little Prince. He also noticed that these prints were first published the day after he was born, or maybe the day before he was born, I forget. I, yeah, it like, doesn't mean of, anything. All yeah. of this series of things that he's mentioning here, he's, he's acting as though the coincidences, but they really are un unconnected yeah. you know, or, or near misses. Yeah. <laughs> Andre then dismisses The Little Prince as a fascist work and suggests that Nazis probably loved it. Then, he went to the Sahara to direct a Little Prince play in the desert with two Japanese monks, and he hallucinated birds flying out of his mouth because he was so tired. <laughs> he hallucinates a lot in his life, and he tells us about the things he sees. He talks more about the desert, but it doesn't play into any later part of the conversation. He brought one of the Japanese monks back to live with his family, and he loved having the guy around, but living with them changed the monk. He grew materialistic and fatter. Now, Andre says, they brought the monk to mass with them, and Andre hallucinated a six-foot-eight blue minotaur in the church, and then it just looked at him, and he thought it was a good omen. <laughs> That's the story. The minotaur looked at you? <laughs> <laughs> Wally asks how things have been since Christmas, and even Andre is surprised Wally wants to hear more. So that was, <laughs> that was Christmas. <laughs> What happened after that? You really want to hear about all of that? Yeah. Well. Why did you invite him to dinner? Yeah. If, if yeah. you didn't expect him to care at all about anything you yeah. had to say. <laughs> Andre talks about his idea to bring a flag everywhere, so he hires a flag maker to design a flag for him. The guy's so annoyed by the request that he gives Andre a swastika flag as a joke, but Andre doesn't get the joke, and he carries this flag around with him everywhere until friends steal it and burn it. Now Andre talks about the Findhorn Foundation. Well, it wasn't supposed to be a swastika, though. It's like it the, was like the the Buddhist, right? Like, uh, yeah, the old version. But everyone but hated it because that. it was a swastika. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, 
there's a little bit too where Walshawn describes a quick thing about a movie about people being strangled on a submarine. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's like, I want to see this movie. Yeah, what's this movie it's about? Much to that. People being strangled <laughs> on a submarine. For a moment, Andre talks about the Findhorn Foundation. Then he talks about going into the basement of a vacant home and being asked to write out his last will and testament. And they took me down the steps into this basement, and the room was just filled with harsh white light. Then they told me to get undressed and give them all my valuables. Andre's a very trusting individual. But this was finally starting to freak him out. They blindfolded him and lowered him into a grave, and he thought for sure he was about to die. They literally cover him with wood and bury him for 30 minutes before they pull him out and have a party. This last experience freaked him out enough that Andre has tried to get back into directing lately, back to normal. Normal for him means being angry and judgmental about everybody, especially himself. He fears that he squandered his time on Earth. He also complains that acquaintances haven't noticed his depression because they're too busy focusing on their own performances of their own personalities. The only person who saw through it was another depressed woman. Then he talks about his mother dying and how the doctors couldn't seem to tell how badly she was doing because they had blinders on when it came to seeing the person and just saw the numbers and readings of her chart. Finally, Wally gets to share a story about how he wore a cat costume on stage and the advice people gave him about how to wear it and how it would affect his performance felt like a calculation to scare him, but they probably didn't mean it that way because he pretended it was fine even though it made him uncomfortable. Andre talks about a dinner with friends after his mother's death and they tried to cheer him up with jokes, but ignoring her death made him feel crazy. They complained together about modern priorities and the goals people set for themselves. The rest of their lives are on autopilot. Andre talks about the founder of Findhorn, Rock, which is short for Scottish mathematician Robert Ogilvy Crombie. Rock claimed he found and interacted with Fauns, F-A-U-N, the mythical creatures, and they invited him to meet the ancient Greek god Pan. Wally sings the virtues of the electric blanket, which he recently acquired, and Andre is disgusted and says he'll never use one because he's scared of technology and thinks it will electrocute him. Well, I know at some point here we, we, we get... Like, the the first half of this movie is very Andre story heavy. Yes. And then it goes more towards Wally's response. But, like, the when when Wally talks about the electric blanket, I know from this point on I am firmly on Wally's side right. of all of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was where you lost me, Andre. You start ripping on well, electric blankets. And you I'm know, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the things that he has to say. I think yeah. these are interesting stories. I think that there's a lot of discussion you can have about what they mean and what he was trying to do yeah. and, and all of those things and how that's impacted his life. But I'm still on Wally's side of yes. this. <laughs> I think the, the only thing that bothers me so far about the way Andre talks is that he talks with sort of, um, he, he puts this emphasis in his sentences in such a way that that you, the listener, are meant to understand that what he is saying sounds totally reasonable. He's like, and then, then this this happened. Like, like you know, it would. Obviously, this is what would happen. The Fonz would meet with him, and they would tell him they're going to go meet uh, Pan, the ancient mm-hmm. Greek god. So anyway, and, and we're supposed to just accept these things as he says them, but it's like, well, that didn't happen. So wh- why are we continuing this story? Andre talks for a while about why electric blankets are the devil, but it's all straw man nonsense that could just as easily be used to dissuade clothes or buildings mm-hmm. or regular blankets. Turn on that electric blanket, and it's like taking a tranquilizer. It's like being lobotomized by watching television. I think you enter the dream world again. It's another meta joke too, because in this abandoned hotel in which the film was shot, they had no functional air conditioning. So both actors made regular use of electric blankets throughout the production. (laughs) Wally points out that electric blankets aren't the devil and they are inventions which serve a purpose. 
I think that means that instead of living under the sun and the moon and the sky and the stars, we're living in a fantasy world of our own making. Yeah, but I mean, I would never give up my electric blanket, Andre. I mean, because uh, New York is cold in the winter. I mean, our apartment is cold. It's a difficult environment. I mean, uh, our lives are tough enough as it is. I'm not looking for ways to get rid of the few things that provide relief and comfort. I mean, on the contrary. I'm looking for more comfort because uh, the world is very abrasive. I mean, uh, I'm trying to protect myself because really there are these abrasive beatings to be avoided everywhere you look. Andre tells him comfort is dangerous, and he knew a lady who ate chicken because it was comfortable and eventually she starved to death because that's all she ate. But that's not how stomachs or eating works. Yeah. <laughs> so he's obviously lying again, and I guess he feels backed into a corner logically, so he has to make things up. He tells Wally that he sounds crazy and then helpfully informs him that there are ghosts in the table they're eating at and that praying can release them. Andre talks about how he feels like a murderer when he uses his doorman's first name because it's infantilizing that he can do that because he's obscenely rich. Wally says he totally understands because when people learn he's a teacher living on scraps, they treat him like shit. But I'd guess Andre will go on calling his doorman Jimmy. Wally laments the superficiality of modern theater, and Andre brings up an attempt at realism that involved using a real human head acquired at a morgue and passing it into the audience after a decapitation scene. Suddenly, Andre is proclaiming the kind of theater that Wally writes to be redundant and worthless, especially when compared to the experiences like his baptism in the woods, and Wally seems genuinely annoyed. Wally points out that not everyone can climb Everest to have some world-shaking enlightenment. And further, what makes Everest more real than the cigar shop next door, and can't someone be just as fascinated there? In this scene, I started to see Andre as sort of like an influencer, who only does things for the story or to share pictures, and if it doesn't sound impressive, then it must not be worth his time. Things have to be completely outlandish to mean anything. But the problem is that people can't see the cigar store now. I mean, things don't affect people the way they used to. I mean, it may very well be that 10 years from now, people will pay $10,000 in cash to be castrated just in order to be affected by something. The suggestion makes so little sense to Wally that his eye is literally set to twitching. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can see his eye just like, what What are you talking about? Well, why, why do you think that is? I mean, why is that? I mean, is it just because people are, are lazy today or they're bored? Andre takes a moment to speak for the plebes in the audience. Okay, yes. We are bored. We're all bored now. Then he suggests that the act of being bored is all a government conspiracy. Then he says that New York City is a concentration camp where people force themselves to stay against their own will. They act as the guards and the inmates. He compares his life of luxury, of infinite privilege, and the freedom to go have dances and feasts in the woods of Poland at the drop of a hat to the plight of German Jews in the late 30s. They're basically the same because this guy is bored and they were hunted and murdered in the millions. He goes on to explain how his Scottish math cult will save humanity with invisible planets all over this one until the new future arrives. How Wally is resisting the urge to gesture for a check, I'll never know, but I get why he's been avoiding this guy. If anyone I knew was ever this interesting, I would stop talking to them. <laughs> so that I, I, I don't take... I, I think that you're right in that, like, it would be annoying to have to respond to it. But I feel like I would want to go to this dinner just to be like, what the fuck is this kind of guy yeah. going to say mm -hmm. this time? That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely entertaining. But I just like, I, I would feel bad having to respond to it, which I guess he's not really making Wally do. He could have just let the guy go on and on and on and then paid for the Yeah, meal. but then he does respond and it's great. Yeah. Andre has completely lost the thread and Wally is speechless for a moment before he finally breaks. Yep. Well, uh, 
Do you, do you want to know my actual response to all this? I mean, do you want to hear my actual response? Yes. See, my actual response, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just trying to, to survive, you know? I mean, I'm just trying to earn a living, just trying to pay my rent and my bills. I mean, uh, uh, I live my life. I enjoy staying home with Debbie. I'm reading Charlton Heston's autobiography, and that's that. He speaks in defense of the life he's put together for himself. He's not embarrassed of the little things that bring him joy. He enjoys errands and reading books and drinking his morning coffee. Sometimes it has a dead cockroach in it, and that's sad. But he doesn't need anything more to appreciate his life. Wally even slips in one of his most famous movie quotes. You know, you seem to be saying that uh, it's, it's inconceivable that anybody could be having a meaningful life today, and, you know, everyone is totally destroyed. Six years before he would say it in Rob Reiner's The Princess Bride. Inconceivable! And we finally get to our central thesis of Wally's side of the chat. I mean... Why is it necessary to have more than this? Or to even think about having more than this? I mean, I don't really know what you're talking about. I mean, I mean, I know what you're talking about. I don't really know what you're talking about. He reminds Andre that reality exists and the Scottish mathematician didn't randomly talk to a fictitious god. He reminds him that coincidence also exists and that it's incredibly self-important to presume that a book of artists' handprints from the 30s was somehow assembled by the universe with him in mind. He also admits that he's not immune to considering omens, like reading too far into the prophecies of fortune cookies, but always unconsciously aware that it was printed in a factory and has no mystical connection to the universe. The, the fact that I got, I mean, the man who wrote it did not know anything about me. I mean, he could not have known anything about me. There's no way that this cookie could actually have to do with me. And the fact that I've gotten it is just basically a joke. Andre points out that omens are just as good a predictor of the future as facts and reason because he's a little crazy because <laughs> that's not true. Wally calls BS again, but in the politest way. He's always being very friendly about it, and it seems like Andre takes it pretty well every yeah. time he's being refuted here. Yeah. Andre concedes that believing in omens is possibly just a way to avoid responsibility for your own decisions, but trusting science can also be very dangerous. Overall, Andre comes across as a very frightened person who thinks everything real is scary and so retreats into fantasy as a personal comfort. Andre would for sure be an anti-vaxxer, <laughs> like one million percent. But I mean, the thing is, Wally, I think it's the exaggerated worship of science that has led us into this situation. I mean, science has been held up to us as a magical force that would somehow solve everything. Well, quite the contrary. It's done quite the contrary. It's destroyed everything. Wally tries to break down Andre's classes in the Polish woods to their basest purpose, to strip all meaning from their actions and to live without purpose, just to live and appreciate it. Wally rejects the concept that life should be without purpose and that existing without goals is anything to be proud of. <laughs> I think uh, it's our nature uh, to do things. I think we should do things. I think that uh, purposefulness is part of our ineradicable basic human structure. And, and to say that we ought to be able to live without it is like saying that uh, a tree ought to be able to live without branches or roots. But, but actually, without branches or roots, it wouldn't be a tree. I mean, it would just be a log. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Andre accuses Wally of being uncomfortable with just being himself, and he thinks that nervousness is unnatural. <laughs> Why shouldn't it make me nervous? It just seems ridiculous to me. That's interesting, Wally. Andre jumps into a story about being in Tibet and drinking tea silently with other people. He says that actively engaging with your goals can happen mechanically and without thought, and it's a terrible way to waste your life. 
He thinks the only way to escape from a zombified autopilot existence is to make some drastic destructive change in your life, like being homeless for a year. Forgetting, of course, that non-rich people don't have the privilege of just doing nothing for a year and recovering from it financially. Andre talks more for a while, and honestly, I feel like I can't summarize this section of the movie because I don't really understand what point he's trying to get at, so anything I would, I would say would be a misinterpretation, I think. But it seems like we get hints here that Andre's marriage is failing or that he's having problems in his marriage, um, that his, his family tends to annoy him, which is why he's constantly going on these trips overseas. And, uh, and then he talks about how cheating can be really rewarding, uh, for a while. And Wally suddenly notices that the restaurant has been trying to close for hours. So Andre pays the bill and they part ways. When I finally came in, Debbie was home from work. And I told her everything about my dinner with Andre. That's the end of the film. In the intervening years, it's garnered a big place in pop culture. Bigger than the Avatar films, I would say. <laughs> Even though it only cost $400,000. Andy Kaufman produced a parody film entitled My Breakfast with Blassie about a wrestling promoter that he had breakfast with. I finally got home and waited and waited for that girl Louise to call. She must have lost my number, though. Because just before midnight, some idiot called up and then said he must have the wrong number. Even though he was a complete stranger, I kept him up for the rest of the night and told him all about my breakfast with Blassie. That's the last line of the Kaufman film. In Frasier episode The Zoo Story, Niles and his father Martin accidentally mix up the tapes they rented, and John Mahoney pokes a little fun. I actually got into it. It was quite suspenseful. Mm. Well, that's the way Duke and I felt about my dinner with Andre. <laughs> Talk about suspense. Yeah. Will I order dessert? <laughs> Will I leave a good tip? A mid-credit scene in Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman also makes use of some My Dinner with Andre action figures. This is... Without a doubt, one of my favorite items, um, my dinner with Andre Action figures. And what you can do, which is so cute, is um, you can reenact the whole scene, you know, where the two guys talk to each other and say, you know, boy, I'm sure glad you found a good restaurant. You know, it's so hard these days to get in. You know, who do you know? Oh, I just called, made a call, spur of the moment. <laughs> oh, you, you can always get a reservation. You know, um, that's not from the movie, but you can make up your own dialogue, which is one of the great things about action figures. And the most recent major My Dinner with Andre parody comes in the form of Community, Season 2, Episode 18, Critical Film Studies, where Jeff and Abed meet for a short dinner before a planned surprise party, but Abed has found a new personality. And it's such a pitch-perfect impersonation of Andre Gregory that when I flipped back to the movie, I felt like Andre was doing an impression of Abed. <laughs> like, they look alike. Yeah. They have very, very similar faces. And he's just pulling off Andre Gregory so well. It's, it's incredible. All the squab. They don't have coil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I look back at my life and I think, who was that? Why did he care so much about so many things that didn't matter? Yeah, who needs Cougar Town? Who needs any pop culture whatsoever? TV, movies, to hell with all of it. Yeah, but basically the, the premise of the episode is that it's Abed's birthday and he was going to have a couple drinks with, uh, he was going to have a couple drinks with Jeff and, uh, Jeff, right? Jeff, yeah. He was going to have a couple drinks with Jeff and then they were going to head to the party, but the dinner goes long because Abed is being very strange. He's like maintaining eye contact. Um, he's, he's being like overly friendly. He's got the same like coat mm -hmm. on the sweater and 
he's just talking about life and and how we treat our experiences and, and the whole time jeff is trying to be like well what about pop culture though you like pop culture and 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 it turns out this the the party that they had planned for him is a pulp fiction themed surprise party so one half of the party is a pulp fiction parody and the other half of the episode is this my dinner with andre parody <laughs> and so uh he's just trying to get him to leave this club so they can go to the other party but uh it works as a successful parody of both films i think um yeah but i do enjoy the film as much as i was picking on andre um i just don't like his character but i don't think we're supposed to totally like his character um or totally like sympathize with his perspective yeah i mean i feel like in this film i i really enjoyed i enjoyed it more than i ever thought i was going to knowing what it was coming into it um this was my first time watching it and um I don't think it's about liking him or not liking him. Right, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. It doesn't matter if you like him or not. I think that he's serving a purpose. Yeah. He's a foil. Yeah. Exactly. I did not care for this film. No? <laughs> uh, I, I, it took me three sittings uh, over the course of three days to watch it. Uh, it. It was very arduous for me to get through. And I, I think that one of the reasons I had to sit in three sittings was I was just delirious from Andre's talking. Yeah. Like, I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about half the time or what you're doing with your life. And so... But he's, he also talks about it so matter-of-fact that it's kind of frustrating sometimes. Yeah, and so I, I had to take a break and then... But I I was never... I was never distracting myself with something else. I wasn't, like, looking at my phone or, or browsing the internet while I was on. I was trying to pay close attention to what he was saying because that's all this movie is. Right, yeah. And, and it, it's not... It's not something else going on in the background. Like I said, oh, they're they're gonna attack the submarine, so I can I can I can I can quick look something else up while this they're is doing the scene this. where Andre's gonna start strangling people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, but no, it's like I'm trying to focus on the dialogue because that's what this movie is. This is a dialogue movie, right? Um, it's basically a podcast. Yeah, and uh, and I just I just I just I just couldn't get into it. And if if this was a play, like I would just be going mad in my seat. Yeah. Um, and it i feel like the theater goers though are a more patient flock and mm-hmm. i feel like they, they would probably have an easier time sitting through this than the typical film goer would i i, I think a certain group of theater goers would, would be yeah. fine sitting through this like it i knew what i was getting into with this yeah. like I, I i knew going into this like if i if i was going to the theater and had not known what this movie was about i would have been very upset yeah but uh I don't know. It's just, I, I, I just don't feel, I don't feel satisfied having watched it. Um, okay. I, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel anything having watched it. I do feel like any like frustration that I had with Andre's character is basically canceled out by Wally's response to him toward the end of the film. Yeah. I, I felt, I felt the same about that. Um, I also felt like I would have been angry with this movie if they expected me to, fully like understand or digest everything that Andre was saying. Yeah. Um, but I think once Wally was responding, I'm like, okay, that's, that's not the point. Yeah. You don't have to understand what all this stuff is trying. And to you can understand you. some of it and sympathize with some of it and yeah. think it sounds interesting. But yeah, I agree with you that it was, it was a relief to learn that the filmmaker didn't expect me to understand everything Andre was saying. Yeah. I, I am curious what that extra hour of material would have been. If, if Wally's response would have been longer because he seems like 
half engaged with the conversation the entire time even though he's asking andre to keep mm. going on and he keeps saying oh tell me more about that oh what what was that like and then what did you do after that but then in the second half of the story he's like angry and he's like champing at the bit to like get in there and say stuff and he's getting louder and louder and like even the even the staff of the restaurant are like this is getting a little out of hand these well two. i think by the time he gets to that point it, andre's almost being accusatory of right, what yeah. of what wally is doing with his life you know telling him that his joy in an electric blanket is right. is misplaced and and not you know good for his life so i think his response makes sense but yeah, yeah. there probably hopefully was more build up on that in, yeah. the, in the material that was taken off and it does seem like they kind of both get little jabs at each other because Wally does the same thing and says like, oh, well, your thing that you do in the woods is like kind of a waste of time too. Like you're, if you're not serving a purpose, then what, what is happening to that time that you're spending just existing in the moment? Like, is it, is it so like orgasmically wonderful to do that, that it's worth the effort? But it's, it's also as much as you want to pretend like, oh, well, we didn't have any goals. And it's like, well, if your goal is to not have goals, then you have a goal and you're achieving it. So it's, yeah. It's weird, but um, I still would say that it's probably worth checking out. Um, and I, I guess uh, someone asked Ebert to name a film that was free of any tropes, and this was his answer because it's so different yeah. than any other movie, and there's there's nothing in it that feels borrowed from any film that came before it. Which I think has some irony to it because it then became a trope, right? Right, <laughs> that it's been so, <laughs> so popularly parodied. parodied yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. But I agree. I agree with that answer. I don't yeah. know that I could have come up with a better one. Uh, thumbs up for me, I would say. I'm yeah. I'm giving it a thumbs up. Uh, I will be the dissenter and give a thumbs down. That's fair. One of us had to. Uh, That's the rule. I, I think that maybe maybe it goes over my head, and I don't I don't want to like be self deprecating and say like I don't understand this film. Blah blah blah. I'll say but, it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I think this <laughs> you one don't understand. It. I'll don't, say you like, don't yeah, understand you. it. You know what? Yeah. Uh, no. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I just some um, eh, nothing. Not for you. All right. Uh, letterboxed. What are we thinking? Oh God, you're gonna make me go first on this one. I think Richard. <laughs> well, Richard's gonna have it low. Yeah, I got a low. Uh, Watch I have... us both have it below him. <laughs> That's always up. no. It's not gonna happen this time. Um, I have it at ninety. Uh, like nine nine zero. Nine zero. Oh God. <laughs> uh, which puts it below the Lone Ranger, but above the nesting. Well, I, on the other hand, have it at ninety nine zero. <laughs> uh, it's right under Image of the Beast and right above SOB. Oh, God. Okay. Wow. Really? Yeah. After all that? Yeah. But I like Image of the Beast. You That's true. Remember. That's true. Wow. I have it nowhere near that, guys. Uh, you have it at nine. No, I mean, I, I, have, it at, I have it at 32. All right. Um, it's below uh, French Lieutenant's Woman and above The Fan. All right. There you go. Our director here was Louis Maul. He directed Au Revoir Les Enfants, which Tarantino once recommended to a customer at Video Archives, the rental store where he worked in his early 20s. The customer's response was, I don't want to see no Reservoir Dogs. And Tarantino enjoyed the response enough to use it as a film title later. Although sometimes he credits a completely different story for inspiring the title. So who knows? Earlier this season, Maul directed Atlantic City, starring Wallace Shawn as a waiter character. Maul was also rumored to be in a relationship with his leading lady, Susan Sarandon, in the late 70s. But as of 1980, he was married to rich and famous actress Candace Bergen. Writer Wallace Shawn 
We had him in Simon last year. He's in a bunch of Pixar stuff. He's in The Princess Bride with Susan Sarandon's ex-husband, from which she gets the Sarandon in her name. Uh, I liked him in uh, Vegas Vacation as the, <laughs> the uh, blackjack war player. Is he the war dealer? Uh, I don't. I don't know if it's war. I think it's. I think it's blackjack. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but yeah, he's just constantly like uh, Chevy Chase is constantly losing to him. Yeah. No, I th- I think I'm thinking of a, a different shorter scene when they go into the the dumb casino and mm. he's just playing war at, at one of the tables. The other writer, Andre Gregory, this is his first film as a performer. He shows up next season in Author, Author. He also shows up in The Mosquito Coast, The Last Temptation of Christ, Bonfire of the Vanities, Demolition Man, and Celebrity. The music here came from Alan Sean, the brother of Wallace Sean. Not many credits I recognized. The editing was from Suzanne Barron, who also cut Atlantic City. And the production manager was Lloyd Kaufman, the legendary trauma founder who we last saw working on The Final Countdown. That's funny. It has, it does actually have an Atlantic City kind of feel to it. It does. For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and that reason is the same director directed it. I think that's everything for My Dinner with Andre. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Mike Lamb. As a new patron of the show, Mike now has access to 38 70s reviews and 40 minisodes. Thank you so much, Mike, for supporting the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing All the Marbles, which IMDb describes like so. Small-timer female wrestling team, the California Dolls, and their manager must face the hardship of their sport and life to succeed. We leave you now with a trailer for All the Marbles. Harry Sears is a self-made showman. I've got two of the most sensational kids to ever hit this business. With a traveling act that hits the road every day. Why are we doing all the punching when we're paying all the bills? And opens every night. What a fantastic (laughs) show you girls put on tonight. He's got taste. He's got patience. All right, that makes 30. There's your five cents. I have no pennies. I'll have to go inside. I'll wait. He's got clout. You can't be nice to these things. They only understand one thing. He's got respect. Wow! He's going from the bottom of the barrel. Stick with me and I'll have your name up in lights. Reno. To the top of the heap. And he's taking his boys along with him. The California Dolls! MGM presents Peter Falk. That's right! Vicki Frederick and Laureen Landon in All the Marbles. If I had a thought, an idea for you girls, that it could be sensational. We are not getting tattooed, Harry. Harry and the girls have been through the ropes. And back. There's no bones broken. Just maybe a bad strain. Stay off your back for a few days. Here goes your social life. They've taken their lumps. We never said you weren't a good manager, Harry. Just a lousy human being. The Hard Knocks. I'm not turning myself into a sideshow freak for you or anybody else. No way. And the mudslinging. You're a lousy lover. You're a lousy manager. Now that really hurts. I am not a lousy manager. But they've always come back for more. 
Now, the girls are a class act. They deserve to get paid. If I wanted a class act, I'd get the Bronte sisters. My dolls would tear their legs off. They've got grit. Guts. Class. And style. You are the champions. And the California dolls are greedy for your title. So remember, pride. And tonight, they're going for all the marbles. We don't lose. I love you both. But we come too far to lose. 